Well, good evening, everyone. You've already heard my voice quite a bit. Now it's uh, time to transition, open up the Word of God with you, so I'm very excited. I met a lot of new folks uh, today and just want to say hello and welcome again. Um, it's great that you accepted the invitation just by way of hands because I met several and just want to see if, if you're new, the first time to a Grace Church of the Valley event, first time to a summer fest, can you just raise your hand so I can identify you? Fantastic. That's sweet. Well, we're really thrilled that you're here, and uh, I want to begin tonight asking this question, because you obviously accepted the invitation to come to Summerfest, even in the heat, but here's the question that I want us to focus on, it's going to kind of direct our time for tonight, is what is the greatest invitation you've ever received? What is the greatest invitation you've ever received? I get an invitation maybe about once a month that I think is pretty great. At least it sounds great on the surface. And it goes uh, a little something like this. It's a phone call that I get. And I still haven't figured out if it's a real female voice or if it's like a computer animated voice. But the voice goes a little something like this. Hello, Dominic Avila. You have been specially selected to an all-exclusive all-expense-paid vacation from Hilton Resorts. You and a friend are invited to travel free of charge to any of our fabulous hotel destinations, whether it's laying on the exotic white sand beaches in Fiji or enjoying the many attractions at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. We invite you and a friend to come and experience your dream vacation on us. You say, wow, do you really write all that stuff down? They've called enough times that I've got it down. And then they say this, please press one to accept this invitation. Now I'll tell you, I know this is not real. I know it's a scam. But there are just certain times in the course of ministry, in the course of parenting, when I get this call and I hear this recording and I think, this could be true. This, this really could be the real deal. So I'm not going to lie to you, I've pushed one before. And what you find out is that uh, it's not actually all exclusive, it's, it's not free, it's not as great as they make it out to seem. But that temptation to push one is a real temptation, because the thought of getting away and escaping and just having some time with my wife alone from the kids, we love our kids obviously, but you know how it is if you're a parent. Man, a date night is great. Uh, a week away is even more fantastic. The same temptation that I have to push one on that telephone is the same temptation that a lot of people traveling northbound on the 99, as they look at that big neon sign that says, Mega Millions, $94 million. I know that lots of people get off on that exit right after to purchase a lotto ticket. It's not necessarily the money that they're excited about, but it's what that money will do, what the money will provide, peace, security, and ultimately, it's going to give me a little bit of rest. The desire for rest is in every human soul. What I want to do with our time tonight is look at a passage of Scripture. It's not a gimmick. There's no fine prints. It's a straightforward, 
invitation to all. And it's found in Matthew chapter 11. So if you have your Bible with you, fantastic, open it up to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. The text is actually printed on the bulletin that's on your table. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And as I read this, this will be a familiar passage of Scripture to you, whether you're in the church or not. I'm sure at one point you have heard this text read. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. This is God's word to us tonight. It says this, from the words, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What I want to do as we work our way through this text is just use this as our outline. I want to answer five questions that will come straight from the text. So here are the five questions. The outline is actually in your bulletin if you like to follow along or take notes. But we're going to begin with question number one. And it's the same questions that you want to have answered when you get an invitation to something. So here they are. Question number one, who is this invitation from? Who is the invitation from? Question number two that we're going to have answered. Who is the invitation for? Who is it from? Who is it for? And then the third question, which is very important, is what is this actually an invitation to? What is it an invitation to? The fourth question we want answered is how should you respond to this invitation? And then finally, we'll wrap it up by looking at the fifth and final question, which is why should you accept this invitation? That's our outline. It's in the bulletin for you. Let's jump right in. Who is this invitation from? I want you to notice how simple and straightforward the invitation is. Come to me. Come to me is what Jesus says. No ambiguity. It is a clear call from the Lord himself. I want you to envision Jesus standing up, as it were, like he did many times with arms stretched wide open, saying, Come to me. Jesus desires that all would come to him and come to him personally. Jesus wants people to come to him personally. I want you to notice that Jesus does not invite people to religion, he doesn't invite people to rituals, he doesn't invite people to come through some sort of priest or spiritual leader. Whenever Jesus throws out an invitation to come, it's to come to himself, directly to Jesus. It's so comforting to know that he doesn't call you to a social cause. He doesn't call you to a political party. But even tonight, as Jesus calls, he calls you personally to himself. I also want you to notice something else, that he doesn't invite you to a Bible study or even to church you say, well, Don, why would you not want to go to a Bible study or church? I love that people go to Bible studies in church. But there are still people that go to Bible studies in church, but there's no Jesus. The aim of that, the end goal of going to a Bible study or church is so that we can come face to face, have an encounter with Jesus personally. Not only are we to come to Christ personally, but as you look at this invitation, Christ wants us to come to him completely. 
When we come to Jesus, we must come all the way to him. He's not satisfied with a few hesitant baby steps towards him. He doesn't say, come by me or come near to me or come close to me. But when he says, come to me, he expects, he anticipates, he desires that we come all the way to him. We are to come to Christ personally. We are to come to him completely. The vision that I have in, in my mind of Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, reaching out his arm and saying, come cross that line. Come cross the bridge, burn it behind you, and don't look back. That is how I want you to come to me. Come to me completely. Now you say, well, how am I to do that? Jesus is obviously not here, not right now. Is he talking about a physical relocation? And I would just say that Jesus' heart is that we would have a movement of the hearts, that we would come to him in a decisive step of faith. Coming to Christ and believing on Christ are synonymous in the Bible. So when Jesus says, come to me, what he means to say is, I want you to believe in me. I want you to trust me. I want your confidence to be in me. That is what it means to come to him personally, completely. This is the heartbeat of the New Testament. This is the heartbeat of Christ. This is what he preaches throughout his ministry. He uses lots of imagery as he preaches. He says things like this, come to the fountain of living water. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. And all of those mental pictures, all of those images are meant to communicate one thing, that Jesus is the life-giving, life-sustaining Savior of the world. In fact, he says this very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the what? And the life. Come to me so that you would have life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is Christ's desire and his promise is if that we come to him, that we will have life and we will have it more abundantly. I want to take just a quick second and think real quickly about this claim that he's making, come to me, and just examine the audacity of that claim. There's lots of things that I can tell my kids to trust daddy in. I can't do that. I can't promise life. Jesus makes these claims that seem so otherworldly. And I hear so many people say, Jesus is a great teacher and he's a great man. And I say, that's not all. That can't be all. Because if he's just a man and he's making these claims, you know what kind of man he is? He's a crazy man. He's out of his mind. He's bonkers. But he makes these claims because he can fulfill these claims. He makes these promises because he has the power to fulfill these promises. One writer said, These words are beyond the invention of any human writer. No one making up words for a divine figure would either have the insight or the daring to say them. But Jesus does, and he does so without hesitation. He says, Come to me. So that's the answer to our first question. Who is this invitation from? It's from Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate. Now the next question we want to look at is, well, who is this invitation for? Who is the invitation for? That's an important question to ask. 
because a lot of times there's limitations on invitations. Is this an exclusive invite? There are some invitations that are for the elites of society. There are some invitations that are for men only. There's no girls allowed. We've got invitations to things where they say, the kids are not welcome. And they don't mean it in a wrong way. It's just the reality. The kids are not welcome. Is that the kind of invitation here? The invitation is coming from the Jewish Messiah. Does that mean that this invitation is only for the Jewish people and every Gentile, me and many of you, are we excluded? That's the beautiful thing about this text. Look at it with me. The word jumps off the page. The invitation is extended to all. To all. It is a free and open gospel offer to every single living person on the earth. All ages, all races, male, female, young, old, all walks of life. The invitation is to all. Now, if you're looking at the text, you say, well, wait a second, Dom. There, there does seem to be a qualification. Isn't it right there in the text? And you're right. Jesus says that all are to come, but he qualifies it by saying all who are weary and heavy laden. So there does seem to be a category of people that he's addressing. And I don't want you to miss this because we have a natural tendency to dismiss announcements that aren't directed at us. When I'm at the restaurant, you know what I'm listening for? If it's packed and we're waiting, I'm waiting for the hostess to get up and say, Avila, party of five. If I don't hear Avila, or typically Avilia, I, I, don't, I don't pay attention. I, I don't get up. But when I hear it, boom, let's go, I'm hungry. And we're up and we go. Well, the danger for the people listening to Jesus during his day and the danger for us this evening is just to assume that he's not talking to us when he says, all who are weary and heavy laden. When Jesus invites the weary and heavy laden to come to him, he knows something about humanity that the majority of people don't. This is what he knows, that all are weary and heavy laden. That no one escapes that reality. But every single person is weary and heavy laden apart from God. The entire human race is restless without God. The great Augustine said it best. He said, to about God, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. My question to you was Augustine writes, did he accurately assess the human race? Is every person weary and heavy laden? Well, let's take a look at those words. What does he mean by those who labor or those who are weary? What he's identifying is a continual weariness, laboring to the point of exhaustion, laboring to the point that there is no rest in sight. Many of you, I can see you, you're, 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 you're fanning yourselves off. It's a hot night. Some of you worked long hours. You came here even maybe to set up. Some of you worked double shifts. Some of you are mothers, and being a mother is difficult. Kids messing things up and, and getting things all dirty, and you're just running around, and you are weary. We all know what that's like. We all know what 
it's like to experience heavy labor and to be drained at the end of the day. But that's not primarily what Jesus has in mind. Well, that's a part of it, but it's not primarily what Jesus has in mind. How do I know that? He doesn't just say that you're weary, but he adds this to it. You're weary and heavy laden. This verb implies that people at some point began to stack on unbearable amounts of weight. They just got stacked on their back. John Paul is over teaching our kids, and he said, hey, Dom, I need to borrow some of your weights. So I said, sweet, what do you need? You're dealing with the kids. You need some like 10s, some 15s, some 25s. He said, no, give me all of your 45s. I said, dude, what are you going to do? My kids are over there because my kid's going to go over there and try to lift that. So he's got tons of weight on a rack. That's the picture. That's the image that Jesus is painting here. In fact, the only other place that this word is used is by Jesus when he's rebuking the religious leaders. You see, the legalists of Jesus' day were always stacking on weight of the people, always making them try to keep these standards that they could not keep and just loading and loading and loading. But Jesus says this later on in Matthew chapter 23. He says, the scribes and Pharisees, they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And he said this, therefore, all that they say, you are to do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things, but they themselves, they don't do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But then he says this, but they themselves are unwilling to move them. You see, in addition to the Ten Commandments that the Jews had, the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, you have 613 laws that the Jewish people were to keep. If that wasn't burdensome enough, if that wasn't enough do's and don'ts, the religious leaders during Jesus' day continued to add to this to continue to stack on rules and and regulations and and made it so difficult for anyone to have a right relationship with God. How did Jesus view that? Well, I'll tell you, he hated it. He hated it because these religious leaders, the people that were supposed to help those draw close to God made it impossible. And so Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 11, woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, you yourselves not even willing to touch them with one finger. It's no different after Jesus died and rose again. In the book of Acts, Peter addresses the same religious leaders, and he says this, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? And then Peter says this. He says, no. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. How are we saved? It's not meticulous law keeping. It's not rules, rules, rules. We are saved by grace through faith. That is the apostolic message that was preached. Salvation comes through faith in Christ. This is what Jesus is addressing here in this passage. The heavy burden that everyone experiences are the failed attempts to be made right with God based on our own human efforts, our own human achievements. Have you experienced this burden? 
this debt that you cannot pay, the overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. You know what you do when no one else is around. You know the things that you've done that other people don't know, but you know that God knows them. And so you walk around with this ever-present boulder of weight on your back because your conscience is condemned, because you know you will come face to face with a judge one day. That is the burden that Jesus addresses, the burden of the law, the burden of self-righteous religion. The burden goes on and on, and it impacts the whole being, your emotions, your physical state, you spiritually. What makes this even more unbearable is the reality that you can do nothing to rid yourself of the burden. Jesus' brother James, he says this very clearly. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. Because you might sit there and think, but I've been a good person. I've kept the laws. James says if you've kept the entire law but stumbled in one point, you're guilty of it all. The psalmist says in the Psalms, my iniquities are over my head. It's like a heavy burden and it's too heavy for me. I've made the stupid mistake of trying to lift too much weight. It's probably where my back is, as beat up as it is. I've put too much weight on and tried to squat it. And there's nothing more terrifying than realizing I'm not going to be able to get up. And I was too proud to have a spotter. That's a terrible situation to be under. The weight of the law crushes everyone. No one is squatting the law. It is a heavy, unbearable burden. And if you think that you can get out of it yourself, you don't realize it's spiritual quicksand. The more that you work, the more that you work, the deeper you sink. Many people don't realize this. I just had a conversation at the gym the other day with a man. Like this guy, we've struck up a lot of conversations. He told me, hey, I'm, I'm turning 70 next week. I said, man, that's fantastic. The Lord's been gracious to you. That's a lot of years. And he said, well, kind of scared. I said, why? He said, well, my mom died when she was 70. And I said, oh. And I said, well, what about your dad? Oh, no, he lived till he was 90. So he said, so I don't know. I mean, I guess that the way you're looking at it, I could die tomorrow. I have another 20 years. And I said, well, just out of love for you, brother, let me ask this question. What happens if you were to die before you turn 70? Are you confident that you will be in heaven? And his response was like many others who have responded to that question. Are you really ready to meet God? Do you have confidence that you'll be in heaven when you die? His response was, oh, absolutely. And I said, can I ask what makes you so confident? And he said, I am a good person. I'm a good person, and I always have been. How many people have you heard claim heaven because they're good? How many people do you know that right now are banking on an eternal future with God because they keep the law, they keep the rules? That might be you this evening. Your confidence might be in the thought that one day your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. 
And I need to be honest with you tonight. Your goodness does not get you to God. Your law-keeping will not kick down the door of heaven for you. Your works will not welcome you into the kingdom of God. The Bible is undeniably clear that no one is able to keep God's standard. Romans 3.23 is very perfect. For anyone who thinks that they can keep the law, there is none righteous, no, not one. The law was actually given to be a constant reminder that we can never, ever measure up. One writer said, look, God established the law not because he thought that men could be obedient. You know why he established the law? Because man thought he could. And that right there, my friends, is the biggest lie. It's not a springboard to allow us to jump our way up into heaven. No, the law, Paul says, is actually a tutor to Christ. It's to show you that you cannot keep this, but there is someone who can on your behalf. The law shows us how woefully short we fall and how desperate we need Christ's life of perfect righteousness. The law reveals that we are not and cannot ever be good enough. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus knows that. He knows you're not good enough. But he offers the solution. And so in our text here, he summons the harassed. He cries out to the helpless. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who have no spiritual currency. Come to me, all who are weighed down by sin and sorrow and remorse, who are weighed down with anxiety and fear. Come to me, all you who are drained, depleted, and done with trying to be made right with God on your own. Come to me. Have your burden removed. Who is the invitation from? It's from Christ. Who is it to? Or who is it for? It's for all. Now the next question is, what is this an invitation to? What exactly is being offered here by Christ? What are we being invited to? Well, this is the key to the entire passage. It is the motivation. It's the captivating reason why we must come. It's what everyone, everywhere, so desperately needs. And it's what we started off with. It's why I push one. It's why we think in our heart, man, a million dollars would, would solve a lot of problems. What we need most, not money, we need rest. We need rest. Our hearts cry out for rest. And that is what Jesus promises. He doesn't just offer it. He guarantees it. Look at verse 28. I will give you rest. There's the promise. Look at the guarantee in verse 29. You will find it for your souls. Well, the question is, what is this rest that Jesus is promising? Because I could use a nap every now and then. I can use a vacation. I can use some respite. I can use an early retirement. But is that what Jesus has in mind when he talks about rest? His original audience would have been very familiar with the concept. You go all the way back to Genesis. God creates everything. It's wonderful. It's all very good. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And that becomes the standard for the Jewish people to do likewise. And on the seventh day, to observe and keep holy the Sabbath rest. 
The idea, the concept of rest was always before the minds of the Jewish people. And you don't have to be a historian as we reach back into the annals of Jewish history to realize that probably no other people group longed for rest, wanted rest more than the Jewish people. And yet those were the people that had it the least. Oppression, captivity, slavery, near extinction by so many different nations and people groups. The Jews longed for rest, and they had a promise that when the Messiah would come, they would finally and fully enjoy this rest. The Messiah did come. He delivered as promised. But the Jewish people missed it because they were primarily looking for the physical rest, and didn't realize that it was first going to be the spiritual rest that Jesus provided. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed every single one of God's commands. He fulfilled every single prophecy. He went faithfully to a cross that he didn't deserve. All of our sins were placed on him on the cross. He was an atonement, a pleasing sacrifice to God. He died, he was buried, he rose from the grave, all to provide rest for our souls if we embrace him by faith. You say, did Jesus really provide rest? Well, think about it. What did Jesus' death provide? Well, his rest allows us to cease from our labor, to cease from our effort, to be made right with God. That is the rest that Jesus provides. His rest clears our consciences because he's the only one to live the perfect life and fulfill God's standards. His rest provides relief from the terror and the dread of damnation. I used to lay up in my bed terrified that I was going to go to hell because I refused to repent. I refused to obey. The call came to me numerous times. I was invited numerous times. I read my Bible numerous times. But I resisted. I was hard-hearted. I was stiff-necked. I refused to repent and turn. And so I was tormented at night. I knew that if I were to die in my sleep, I knew if I were to die in a car crash, I would face the judge and I would be going to hell. Well, because Christ provides this rest to those who believe, I go to sleep the happiest guy. If I die tonight, it would be the most glorious thing. Maybe not for my wife and my kids and maybe some of you, but I will be celebrating in glory with Christ, and that is rest. His rest provides a peace, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. His rest fixes us positionally into his family. So now that we're permanently united to him, never to be cast out, never to be orphaned, That is the rest that Jesus provides. Do you see how this promise of rest is one of the sweetest, if not the sweetest promise in all of the Bible? Have you experienced this rest? It's my question to you. Do you know what it's like to cease from all this labor? No more having to climb up the ladder. No more having to fall off the ladder. No more failed attempts. No more heavy toil. The rest that Jesus offers is exactly why people leave everything to pursue him. 
It's exactly why you're willing to give all, even relationships, to have this rest. It really is the great exchange, exchanging dirt for diamonds, the rest that Christ offers you even tonight. Well, you might be sitting thinking, sounds great, Dom, that rest, like the description, seems like it's coming from the Bible, seems like it's coming from Jesus' mouth, but you don't know what kind of person I am. You don't know the things that I've done because I'm confident that I don't deserve that kind of forgiveness or that kind of rest that you've just described. And I just want to say to you, just personally, join the club. There is no one here that deserves Christ's grace. No one here that deserves the rest that we learn about in the scriptures. Of course you're not worthy. But listen to this. Despite our unworthiness, the invitation is still for all. No matter how far you've drifted from God, no matter how many times you've failed God, no matter how many times you've neglected Him or ignored Him, no matter what your background is, no matter what your flaws, no matter what your faults, no matter what your parents did to you, no matter how bad of a parent you are, this rest is offered to you even tonight. It doesn't matter what kind of baggage you have, whether it's five years or 50 years, Jesus stands before you today and offers you this rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you this rest. Maybe that's not you. You're on the other side of the spectrum and you say, look, that's good. People need to hear that but not me, because I'm fine the way things are going, comfortable. Maybe you do have some material wealth. Maybe things are going great in your family. Your life is just going great right now. You feel like you have no needs. You feel like you don't need this rest that Jesus is describing. Look, if you think you're not good enough, you're right. You're not good enough. If you think that you are good enough, you're wrong. You're not. The good news of Jesus Christ starts right here. You must acknowledge that you desperately need this rest. All people are under an unliftable weight, and Jesus wants you to know, even tonight, just come to me. Let me take that burden of yours and provide you with rest. It's just amazing, it's astonishing that he offers this kind of rest to all of us here. People with absolutely nothing to give, he offers it to us now. So who's the invitation from? It's from Jesus. Who's the invitation for? It's to all. What is an invitation to? It's to experience salvation rest. Now we have to answer the fourth question is, how do we respond to this invitation? The rest is freely given but I want you to notice that it's freely given only to those who are willing to accept this invitation on his terms. On his terms. What are those terms? Look at the imagery he paints in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Now I struggled for a long time because I was too proud to ask, what does yoke actually mean? I thought it was just like our eggs and our yolk. It made no sense to me. And I am not a farmer. Like Scott said, I'm from the hood, so I never saw a yoke until I opened up a study Bible. 
okay? But let me explain to you. A yoke was a wooden collar that is hooked onto an animal. That animal is then hooked to another animal or to a cart. And the use of the yoke was, was very wise. It was for plowing a field to make it much easier or to be able to help unload a burden. So that's what the yoke is for. But the yoke had some other ideas as it's conveyed in the scriptures. In a secular sense, the yoke was the yoke of foreign domination, the yoke of slavery. The Jews were under the yoke of the Egyptians. It's the yoke of oppression. But there's also an, a religious idea of yoke where the rabbis taught that one is to come under the yoke of wisdom or one is to come under the yoke of the law, under the Torah. You put these ideas together and I think what Jesus says is very plain. When he says to take my yoke upon you, he's saying something very simple. He's saying, I want you to submit. The yoke is all about submission. You put the yoke on and you are submitting to another's rule. You're submitting to another's authority. And the illustration really is a genius picture of what everyone must do when we come to Christ. We must lay our life down and serve a new master. We must say, no longer my will, but your will. That is what it means to take upon Jesus' yoke, to fully, completely, totally submit to Christ's authority, direction, and lordship. You know, too many in the church are claiming to be Christians. I was actually talking to my barber today. I shared, hey, I'd love for you to come to Summerfest. Got into the gospel with him. And he said, you know what? I hate the word Christian. And I said, wow, that's pretty strong. He said, you know why? And I asked him, why do you hate the word Christian? He said, you know why I hate it? Because I have no idea who a Christian is. So many people say they're Christians, but look nothing like Christians. So I don't like that word. I don't blame him. It's a biblical word. It's a good word. It's a glorious word. It's, it's a follower of Christ. But there's too many who are claiming Christ, but not actually submitting to Christ and looking like him. This is how the formula works. No submission, no Savior. You can't say Jesus is your Savior if you're not submitting to his Lordship. You can't have one with the, out the other. It's both and and not either or. You can't follow Jesus and refuse to do what he says. If you haven't been yoked to Christ, then you're not truly a follower of Christ. You can't say I'm yoked to Christ and he's going one direction and you're going another direction. That was me all throughout junior high and high school and junior college claiming a Christian claiming to be a follower of Christ, but looking and acting and thinking and planning and speaking nothing like a true follower. When that barber says, man, I hate the name Christian because I just can't tell who's a Christian anymore. Oh no, you should be able to tell. The Christian is the one who submits to Christ's authority and follows Christ closely. You say, well, how am I supposed to submit to his lordship? I want you to notice 
that there's a key word that appears here along with take my yoke. It says right there, and, not or, take my yoke and learn from me. This right here is the essence of discipleship. To take upon his yoke is to, to submit to him. And to learn from him is to become a lifelong disciple. This word learn has the same root for the word disciple. It's simply a learner. It's a follower. It's one who receives instruction. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just academic. academic. It's not just books. It is a learning that settles in one's heart and it begins to direct every action and attitude. That is what it means to become a disciple. We submit our minds to Christ and everything else begins to follow. Being a disciple of Christ means that we learn from him and we follow him and we delight to do so. We adopt his mindsets. We begin to look like him and view the world the way he does. We embrace his standard of truth. We love what he loves and hate what he hates. We live in such a way that when people look at our life, it proves that we know him, that we trust him, and that we love him. Some might be honest and just say, look, I'm, I'm into this rest thing, but the submission thing, not so much. It doesn't sound so appealing. This whole idea of following after Jesus. Why should I be willing to submit to his authority? Got to ask that question. And I'm glad you did because this is how we're going to finish. Why should you accept his invitation? Look at verse 29 again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And look at verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why should you accept this invitation, why push one? Here it is right here. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of his character. It's his nature, his very being. And he offers that to you. He gives, in my mind, the most compelling reason why we should become disciples, why we should submit to him. He says, I am lowly or gentle, and humble in heart. This is actually the only place in Scripture where the heart of Christ is identified in this way. You want to know the heart of Christ? It is right here. The more familiar that you become with Jesus, the more that you get to know Him, the more that you open the Scriptures and see Him face to face, the more attractive He becomes, the more appealing He is. Jesus is not like the rulers of the world. He is not cruel. He's not going to exploit you or exasperate you. Rejecting his offer makes complete sense if Jesus is abrasive or if he's abusive. If he was a bully, I tell you, run. But that is not Jesus when you encounter him in the scriptures. If you come to him by faith, he won't take advantage of you. He'll never seek to intimidate you. He doesn't stand over you like a raging and belittling father. He is a benevolent king. The scriptures say that he is kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's tender-hearted. You won't find anyone in the world 
who is more loving and compassionate and tender-hearted than Jesus. He says, I am humble in heart. And I just think, isn't that amazing? No one walked on this planet who had more power, more authority. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. All power and authority belong to him. And yet the Bible says, I am humble in heart. He never exercised his strength in a reckless manner. He tempered his strength with gentleness. And right now, right here, Jesus says, look, that's my very nature. This is who I am. This is my heart. That is why I want you to come to me. Come and experience me. Come and have this rest. You know what rest is? Rest is Jesus. Eternal life is Jesus. A personal, intimate, unbreakable relationship with Christ. That is what he is calling you to. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ says his yoke is easy. I've got to be honest with you. You become a Christian, life doesn't automatically become trialless and easy. In fact, the Christian life is very difficult, but it is an exchanging of yokes. You're taking his good and lighter and more acceptable yoke and you're trading it for a yoke that's going to wear you down and condemn you to hell. That is a good exchange. You ever purchase something and you walk away and you think, I don't know if I came out good on that one. Not this offer. Not this invitation. You walk away blessed. You walk away secure. You walk away with peace. You walk away with salvation and eternal life. When you begin to see that Christ's commandments are actually good for us, you realize, like the Apostle John, who said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And look, his commandments are not burdensome. So Christianity might be difficult, but the promise to us is that it is not burdensome. Why? Because Christ empowers us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He helps us during every trial. He continues to provide strength for us when we're weary. And that is his promise to everyone who would come to him and embrace him and receive this rest. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest gift, the greatest relief, the greatest reward that you will ever be invited to receive from the mouth of Christ. There are so many burdens in the world, so many things weighing us down. Even tonight, many of you have extremely difficult burdens. Are you willing to let it go and give it to Christ and exchange your heavy burden for his light burden? Do not make excuses. Too many in the scriptures made excuses. I remember this passage that just struck fear in my heart. It's the parable of the rich fool. There's a man who was enjoying his plenty. And in Luke chapter 12, he says, 
What shall I do now that I have so many crops? I know I'm going to go and build more. And I'm going to build more. And I'm going to store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And listen to what he says to himself. He's preaching to himself. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Christ offers you this rest, but you need to recognize that nothing in this life will satisfy and nothing will provide this rest for you except him and him alone. Would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord and as we pray? And I want to ask the same question. What are you resting in? Is what you're resting in, is it truly reliable? Do you have that rest that Christ offers in this text? And by rest, I mean, do you have Christ? Is he yours by faith? Do you possess him? Do you belong to him? Are all of his promises yours? If you're unwilling to accept the invitation, I want you just to think as you're there with your eyes closed and we begin to pray, is this an invitation that you're willing to refuse? Are you willing to accept the implications, the consequences of refusing this invitation from Christ? Is there something hindering you from coming to Jesus? Because his call is to you today, personally. Come to me. Come to me. Oh, Father, you are merciful in your call to sinners to repent. This offer will not last forever. There will be a day when it is too late to respond to your invitation. And all those who ignore you or delay or reject are in danger of judgment. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your call, your clear call to us all from this passage. Thank you that your arms are open up wide, that your voice is clear, that this invitation is extended to all. You are the Son of God. You have accomplished everything we could not do. And we're grateful for the salvation rest that you offer. Oh, Lord, this is such a great invitation. Nothing to buy, nothing to do, nothing to jump through. There's no do not enter sign on you, God. There's no closed for business, but you are open and available to us all, even now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, and I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people to be encouraged by the truth that was spoken tonight, and that you would call those who have yet to receive this invitation to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.